Hey there, today's episode is brought to you by Chargebee and Vitaly. Chargebee just launched their 2024 State of the Subscriptions and Revenue Growth Report, packed with retention insights and strategies from over 300 of the fastest growing subscription businesses. You can grab a copy of the report today by visiting chargebee.com forward slash churnfm. That's C-H-A-R-G-E-B-E-E dot C-O-M forward slash C-H-U-R-N-F-M. And Vitaly is bringing in a new era for customer success productivity with their all-in-one customer success platform. Vitaly gives you unmatched visibility into your company's health and success. And now you can measure operational strategies on customer outcomes at scale with goals directly in Vitaly. They're also currently giving away a free pair of AirPods to all ChurnFM listeners when you take a qualified demo with them. So if you're in the market for a CS platform, visit vitaly.io forward slash churnfm today to schedule your demo and get your airpods that's v-i-t-a-l-l-y dot i-o forward slash c-h-u-r-n-f-m if you decide to check either of them out please make sure to use the links quoted as it allows them to measure the roi of this campaign and helps me retain them as our sponsors to continue producing churnfm as an independent creator with that being said let's jump to today's episode Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Daniel McCarthy, director and co-founder of Theta. In this episode, Daniel shares how he founded two companies, all while doing his master's degree in teaching at a university. We then discuss the key metrics companies should start tracking to build their evaluation scorecard and how investors use them to set a company's valuation. We then wrapped up by discussing the relationship between customer acquisition costs and organic acquisition and its impact on valuation. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. How do you build a habit for product? You need to invest. And you saw these, these different... You don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Daniel is the Assistant Professor of Marketing at Emory University and the Director and Co-Founder of Theta, a custom-based corporate valuation platform. Prior to Theta, Daniel co-founded Zodiac, a predictive customer analytics platform that was later acquired by Nike and also served as a resident data scientist at Wharton. So my first question for you, Daniel, is it appears from LinkedIn that both Zodiac and Theta, you've also held roles at Emory and Wharton University at the same times. How did you manage that, first of all? And do you find that maybe you had some sort of strategic advantage while building those companies with those university placements? Yes, yeah, really good question. It's a lot of work to both be a PhD student and now a professor while also co-founding a business. I think the main things that have made both of those things work is that for one, the companies are doing the same sort of stuff that I focus on for my academic research. So it's just an area that I spend a lot of time with. And really, the synergies work in both directions. You're doing all this great academic work in a couple of years. 
pass and someone comes to you with a problem about how to run the numbers on a particular business and you can draw on that experience that you've had from the models that you build. It could also work in the other direction in the sense that the companies that you work with, it really helps understand like what are the problems that are on the mind of the companies that you're working with. And a data sets become not an issue. Then you have more than enough data sets that you could ever deal with. And you know, the question becomes, what is it that you should choose to focus on? I'd say the, the other thing that's been extremely important is just the power of knowing what you're good at and what you're not and delegating when, when it falls outside of the strike zone. So at Zodiac, I was the chief statistician. I was co-founder and chief statistician. But yeah, that was kind of all I did was primarily when we had a new company that came to us. And we had to build a model for how customers are going to make purchases in the future. And it wasn't captured well by the existing portfolio of models that we had. It was my job to go in there and specify our new model. And so mobile gaming was one example of that. Just different dynamics than you would see at, say, an e-commerce retailer. Part of pharmaceutical businesses was another. Uh, telecommunications, we had a large a telecom client. And so for them, we needed to specify a different model. But for... Most of the other aspects of the business, I just tried to stay out of the way. <laughs> and uh, for one, I think it's a good thing because it's just not what I'm good at. And then for two, it allows me to retain that time to be able to successfully complete the PhD process and go and become an academic. Yeah, so it's really been, it's been nice in that way. It's an amazing validation to be able to write these papers for a primarily academic audience and then bring it to life with 200 companies. But uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing like application as well of the work. Uh, and then it's like proving the theory in real life at the same time uh, at the end of it as well, which is great. Uh, and we're kind of in the midst of this. Yeah. They call it the reproducibility crisis. I don't know if you're even following all that, but it's that yeah. a lot of results within academic literature don't tend to seem to play out in the real world. And other academics will try and replicate the results of these papers and they'll say, we did it again and we didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. And so there's just been this uh, identity crisis uh, that the whole academic field's been having to some degree. And this is like the opposite. Here we're taking these methods and we're showing, yeah, you could do it on this business that we did in our paper, or you could do it on any of the 250 other businesses that we've used it on. And it still holds up really quite well. So no, no concerns about generalizability here. That's great. Yeah, I think because that's also like one of the shames, I think, sometimes is that you hear some great work being done in universities, but then hardly any of it ever gets productized and actually makes it out past the paper that gets written for it. One, like that it gets out and then two, that it's actually working and it's serving great purpose and you're validating that over and over. It's amazing. I I'm interested. You said like you get to do work in a field and a space that you're interested in. What interests you so much about the space uh, that you're currently in, like custom analytics platform and predictive uh, analytics specifically? Yeah, I'd say that it's, the fact that it sits at the intersection of three areas that I just really love, statistics, marketing, and finance. I had started on the buy side at a hedge fund. I worked for about six years after I finished undergrad, also at war. And then after that, I came back for the PhD. My PhD was formerly in statistics, not in marketing, but it was in the second year of the PhD program that someone had connected me with this marketing professor, Peter Fader. And, uh, and the great thing about this kind of whole area of predicting what customers will do and then using that to generate insights about how companies as a whole are doing is, again, you've got the predictive models. So that's all, that's statistics. You're predicting what customers will do, which is fundamentally a marketing problem. 
But then you're using that to come to assessments about the overall health and valuation companies, which is a finance problem. And uh, it's very rare to, to find a topic that hits on all three of those different areas at once. But this is one of the few that does. Yeah, I definitely see that. So I'm interested today to dive into a little bit about the new company and Theta and what you're doing there. From a very quick skimp and understanding as well, it caught my attention, a customer-based corporate valuation platform. So if I'm understanding this correctly, you go in and you help evaluate and set valuations for specific companies and you're taking a look at the customers and retention and things like this. Is this how you go about valuating companies? Yeah, I'd say that it's actually related to what I had done at Zodiac. So it's Zodiac. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. So at Zodiac, what we had done was we would take in data from companies themselves, all the transactional and CRM data. And then we would train a series of predictive models for what each and every individual customer will do in the future. Yeah. How many purchases they're going to make and how much they're going to spend when they make the purchases. And then use that to help the marketers make tactical customer acquisition and retention decisions. At Theta, in some sense, we're using the same models, but instead of helping the marketers, we're still actually doing that now to, to, to a fairly reasonable degree. But the other core constituency has been investors. And so the canonical kind of stereotypical engagement would be we're working with a PE firm. The PE firm made it past the first round of diligence. Now there's just a handful of firms. They're looking at this company very seriously. Typically at that stage, at the later stage, the diligence process that company will put more data into the data room and we'll basically train the same models that we did at Zodiac, but now we're using it to understand how good the customer economics are. How good is customer lifetime value? How strong is the retention? What is the implied marketing return on investment? Those sorts of things. And how's that been varying by acquisition cohort and across different customer segments and acquisition channel and whatnot? And then use that to help the PE firm decide it's just something that we really want to move forward with or do we see signs that there is some degradation in the most recent, say, acquisition cohorts you know, that may make us a little bit more hesitant to, to move forward with the deal? Yes, it's really been cool. Again, very synergistic. And that's also why we're doing it on the corporate side. But the use cases are just not quite the same. Yeah, that's interesting because I think if you torture the data enough, like it confesses to anything in most cases. And I think specifically like in these sorts of larger deals, uh, it is easier to manipulate certain numbers as well to look better than they actually are at the surface level. But when you dive a little bit deeper, you start to understand like maybe businesses aren't as healthy as they look. And actually, one of the interesting ones that we talk about a little bit on the show sometimes is very few companies know about what the churn ceiling is and like when you're going to hit this growth ceiling due to your churn rates and your growth rates in early stage, like churn is really masked because you have hyper growth and you're growing a lot faster than you're churning of customers. But at some point, like it comes this moment in the company's life cycle and they realize, okay, our growth is going to stall in like the next 12 or 24 or 36 months, whatever it is. And then everybody switches on the alarm bells. We need to start focusing on this now because I think having a deep understanding of how the data works and uh, the underlying metrics that actually move the final output, which is churn, uh, is really important. Let's dive into this a little bit deep because I think it's interesting for the audience as well to understand. And I think from both aspects, one is like, how do you go about understanding this for your business and uh, setting like benchmarks and getting yourself to a point where you have got a good understanding of, of how data and your business operating? And then second, like how that's going to influence the overall valuation that you're going to get at the end of the day and how you're calculating that. So I'd be interested to dive in that as well. So first of all, as a customer, coming to you, I want to understand my business better. Like, 
Where do you typically get started with these companies and how do you get them set up? I just wanted to give a quick reminder that our sponsors of this episode today are Vitaly and Chargebee. Vitaly are giving away a free pair of AirPods to all qualified demos. So if you're in the market for a new CS platform, make sure to visit vitaly.io forward slash churnfm today. You can also grab a copy of the latest state of the subscription and revenue growth report by visiting chargebee.com forward slash churnfm and let them both know that I sent you. Now back to today's episode. Yeah, typically I'll just think of it as like a, it's like a report card, but instead of English and math, it's about customer economics. And we'll typically break it down into a series of measures, customer lifetime value, customer acquisition cost, you know, different retention measures, the expected lifetime of customers, yeah, especially for subscription firms, what it all means for implied marketing return on investment, which is basically the net present value of the customer divided by how much it's been spent to acquire customers. And yeah, I think what it can do, if, if you get those figures, how they've been evolving across acquisition cohorts and for the different segments of your business, which you can cut by product of first purchase, in-store versus online, acquisition channel, or some other feature, it can really help you understand like where is the value coming from in your business and uh, which segments of your business are healthy, which are not. And we really recommend starting there. And I think what it can do is it can help you get a sense for just how healthy you are. And, uh, and then obviously the next question is, well, what do you do about it? And I think that's where you can start moving from purely predicting to being a bit more normative and saying, this segment doesn't seem good. And maybe we can help understand why. And maybe if there's nothing that we can do, uh, then we should reallocate budget away from that segment of the business towards the other segments of the business that seem to be behaving uh, in a better way. So usually yeah, it's starting with that report card and then seeing what it applies to decide what the best next step would be. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Good place. Yeah, it's actually funny. It's something that I've done very recently. Like last week was busy looking at from our startup as well, just trying to understand like, now that we've started charging customers and uh, breaking things down into cohorts, trying to understand how each code is performing. And I started very similar to what you mentioned as well. I just basically took out like total signups uh, by code per week, uh, total spend, uh, if anything, in some weeks, and number of customers acquired. Uh, from there, got conversion rates, started then looking as well, trying to understand what the payback period would be for those customers and see how the cohorts are changing over time. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of so, much, so many customers where we can go deep into segments yet, but already starting to see some good signals and good ideas like we can make improvements. But maybe if we want to go a little bit technical, like with companies now getting set up and these things together. So first stage is just getting the report card. As you mentioned, you have your key metrics that you want to be tracking. You mentioned then like getting a bit of predictive analytics inside there. What would you typically be looking at then? And how would you be using the inputs that you've gathered from the report card to predict future behavior? Yeah, so those are part of the report card would be predictive measures. So for things like customer lifetime value, you're going to have to make a prediction. And uh, and predicting is hard. So yeah, I'd say that's where we fall back on the experience that we've had with the, we've probably run the numbers now on 300, 350 distinct customers between the two businesses that I've started. And I'd say the easier customers to value are the ones that you've acquired a long time ago, because for them, you've observed more of their lifetime already. The, the really hard ones are those young customers that you're acquiring over the past six months. And the tricky part is those are the customers that are in some sense most relevant to you. Because for one, because they're earlier on in the relationship 
they're probably more malleable. If you've been with a firm for five years, 10 years, you're probably pretty set in your ways. <laughs> so not a whole lot that you can change. And because if you acquired a customer only three, three to six months ago, it also means you don't have a whole lot of transactional behavior to make that prediction with. And so, so you just have less data, you have more uncertainty in what the future is going to be. And that's really where you want to lean on very good models that allow you to be able to make those predictions. And so we really pride ourselves in being able to predict very accurately, but we're the first to say that a lot of the value is coming from our ability to connect the dots across the different acquisition cohorts so that we can be able to take those young cohorts and still be able to predict for them reasonably accurately. Yeah, I think that's one of the challenges as well. Like you say, is that LTV itself is the more data you have to predict it, the better. But the newer customers are the ones that are coming to the product for as it is today and the experience it is today. And newer customers in an older company will typically be a little bit more fickle than older customers because you tend mm -hmm. to get like the crossing of the chasm where you've gone from early adopters who are happy just to get by with things and then later stage. It's funny because like I now just started setting up analytics for ourselves for revenue and stuff. And I like, I'm not going to mention any names, but I added two or three different uh, revenue reporting services and each one of them has reported LTV differently. There isn't one that's giving me the same number and they vary quite a bit. Like there's a variance of like 10 to 15% between each of them. And they're obviously all using their models to calculate because it's the same data that's being fed into each one of them. So, so from your side of your perspective, like when looking at LTV, you tend to weight older customers more when predicting uh, customer lifetime value. We predict at the individual level. And so oh, yeah. each customer in, in that sense gets their own weight, but we want to learn from all the customers. And obviously the, the older customers can really help us understand what the young customers will do. Yeah, it's really, it's an important data point. So in that sense, older customers will get meaningful weight when we're making the predictions for very young customers, but maybe not so much the other way around. Yeah. So I want to try something. If I was an investor and I came to you and said, Hey, Daniel, we're looking to invest in this company. We'd like you to come and let us know, is this a good investment that we should be making? What metrics would I be asking you for to see first of all? And then what would be like really positive indicators and indicators that would get them to question their investment that you would start to see? Yeah, I'm a big return on investment person. If you're evaluating a capital project, ultimately what you care about is what is its net present value and what sort of return am I going to get on the invest capital that I put into it? And yeah, I think of the customer in the same way. It's just that now the project is the customer. And so yeah, in that sense, a lot of our sort of measures would revolve around return on investment. And I'd say the second broad category is about quantity. Having a high lifetime value, having a great marketing return on investment, it's good, but um, it really is a quality measure for a customer. And the other big thing that we're going to want to know is how effectively are you penetrating your market? You know, are you able to acquire a lot of customers at that value? And uh, so those are the two big broad categories. And we'll look at both. Obviously, the number of acquisitions that you have over time, that's that is your quantity measure, but you're going to want to have a good forward-looking sense that there's still a lot more people yet to be acquired that you will be able to acquire. Yeah, for the quality measures, yeah, I'd say that's where we probably spend most of our time. Yeah, I think that the big thing that we focus on is what is the value of customers after they're acquired. And so then we can say, well, if this is how valuable they are after they acquire, and this is how much is being spent to acquire them, that 
that allows us to be able to say, yep, we're doing a good job or no, you're not doing a good job. But the reason we want to split those two apart too is you'll have very different customer acquisition costs by acquisition channel. And so yeah, inevitably one can quote what their average CAC is, but that's blending organic customers with customers that have been acquired to pay channels. And one very important thing, if you're looking to establish this company can really scale is can they make a whole bunch of money? Do they have a high lifetime value on their pay channels? And for them, we're going to be looking, we're going to be trying to focus on measures of marginal pack and pay channels and how that compares to the value of those customers after acquisition. And that's, that's a higher bar to set. But if they can really prove that out, then that sort of company can acquire much more explosively. It's an interesting topic, this as well, because I think, and I've observed this at different companies before previously at Hotjar as well, is that the... Organic channels, as you start to hit scale, start to like account for the majority of your acquisition at some point, depending obviously on the type of business. So I'm like generalizing, but like if you're serving SMB mid markets, uh, generally, like at some point, word of mouth would be one of the biggest drivers, which should be at least for the business. And what ends up happening when you start to break down and you split like uh, attributable revenue to signups and uh, trying to understand, okay, what is the payback period and the CAC when it comes from individual channels? I feel there's a bias in that in the sense that it doesn't account for the impact and effects of marketing that's unattributable in the sense mm-hmm. of like the brand that you build, the equity that you have, the word of mouth that comes as a result of that initial marketing. And then when you start to look at like the customer acquisition costs on an individual channel level, yes, like specific channels may look extremely high, but then mm-hmm. you have built this amazing like inbound through word of mouth and thing that comes as a result of the one customer you get from paid brings in another three or four. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard one like to understand because I remember when I first saw the numbers, I was like, shit, is that how much we spend to acquire a customer? And then I started thinking, I was like, but this is what always been done and this has worked extremely well. If it was the case that... Like it wasn't working, then it would have been cut a long time ago. How do you see it uh, from this perspective? Because well? I'm sure you've seen this quite a bit and seen different types of businesses. Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say it's funny because in B2C, we spend a lot of time in B2C. We do B2B as well. We've done a number of B2B businesses. But in B2C, we tend to see the reverse that you know, early on in a company's life, People who adopt oftentimes, they didn't need to be pushed so hard to adopt. And yeah, so they'll often come in organically or through some sort of referral program that the company might have. But that usually at some point, you mentioned that ceiling, you hit this adoption ceiling where there's only so many people that you can acquire through through those channels. And so the companies, they start putting out the Facebook ads to go big. And uh, and that's usually what causes the overall CAC to move up and they start moving into these more expensive channels. And the question becomes, can you prove out economics there? I wouldn't be surprised that for some B2C, B2B businesses, it's the opposite, that they go in the reverse direction. But yeah, that's, it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, uh, I, think, I, I think it depends on the audience you're serving as well. So I think like enterprise, definitely, you, you rely on these channels quite a bit and it does grow and get more and more expensive over time. But yeah, sorry, I cut you there. Yeah, the attribution question is a tough one. And in part, it's an unresolvable one because it's just, it's a tough problem. And it's almost not even a a models problem. Yeah, I think that there are some great models that one can use, but it's also a big function of how good the data is. And and just before acquisition, there's just only so much that you can tie together. And uh, and I actually think maybe it it could be a little bit easier in B2B and just because there's fewer customers and you're tracking more of the activity or for the people who may adopt but haven't done so yet. 
uh, as soon as you move to B2C, it's just terrible. <laughs> There's this very limited ability to track individual people as they're looking at exposed to different ads on one platform versus another, and they're speaking with somebody, and then they convert on the website. You know, that person will typically be tagged as an organic acquisition, but the company spent a whole bunch of money to make it happen. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, to that point, it also it speaks to the importance of having people will tend to poo-poo the overall CAC, especially if you're in marketing, because if you market say, what really matters is your marginal CAC. You know, we want to know how much you're going to spend on that incremental customer and you know, how likely it is that's going to bring about an opposition. Ultimately, these attribution issues will make that calculation very hard to do. I'd say that the redeeming characteristic or overall CAC is that you're not holding back any portion of the marketing budget. You're comparing total marketing spend to total acquisitions. And maybe you should account for some lead lag between the two, but it traces you back. And in some sense, it's the most important thing because ultimately, if you're an investor, what you want to know is how many customers are they going to acquire? What's the marketing spend going to be? What's revenue going to be? You know, that overall cash figure can be really helpful for that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's very helpful like comparing like different paid channels and understanding from there because you have almost like an apples to apples. But I also have I've noticed in a few different other companies that I've been speaking to from time to time, like an example is, for example, in the crypto space now, I think the audience there tends to be extremely technically sophisticated where the majority are using things like ad blockers and different types of browsers. And so attribution is almost like impossible in that space for that specific segment and audience. And then if you're doing something specifically where you're breaking it down and trying to understand what your customer acquisition costs uh, from specific channels, they're going to look extremely high when in actuality, maybe 20 to 50% is coming from one of those channels and you're unable to attribute it. So I think the attribution, I think, is like an, it's an unsolved problem that will probably never be solved. Like you can get a decent idea. And I think it's like the signal versus noise, like understanding like how much should you rely on it versus how much yeah. should you ignore it. Also, there's a question of decision orientation that uh, we're always trying to get the best numbers. What will change your decision? That And that could be a slightly different question, That it could be that if you were a bit more precise, you maybe you would have made the same decision. And so there's a question of just how important it is to get it exactly right. We usually compute these numbers. We'll be very upfront about what their limitations could be. And then the idea would be, what does it tell us about what we could do? And, uh, and the one thing that you could do, for example, is even if you knew that there were potential attribution issues, if you had three channels that all tended to be right at the very bottom of the funnel or tended to have you know, very quick conversion or no conversion at all, then at least you can compare those three and be able to say, it seems like this one is way more productive than this other one. Yeah. So In that yeah. case, you're comparing apples to some degree as well. Exactly. Yeah. You just need to, to be able to, you don't want to compare the billboards to the Facebook ads. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think this is also something as well, like earlier in my career, I obsessed of trying to get the absolute cleanest data set and make sure like the numbers were 100% correct. But I think the more, the one thing I've learned is probably like you never have the perfect data set and you never have the most uh, like sophisticated setup, when, especially when you're dealing with startups, but really understanding, trying to understand what signals can you rely on versus what are unreliable. I think getting to that point is it's quite difficult. Yep, I agree. 
You so you work as well then with evaluations for companies. Like what are some of you mentioned okay now how your valuation works yourself. When it comes to the actual valuation that is set for the purchase price of these companies, what are the metrics you would say are influencing that final valuation the most? Again, I'd spent my life in finance before coming back and back in Nemia. And uh, and I actually think about the valuation problem in the same way that a finance professional would. And that is that the value of a firm is driven off of its future free cash flows. And it sounds so old fashioned, but I think what goes out of style comes back in style. And here we are in the midst of a potential deep recession, time will tell. But I think if you're focusing on the cash flows, it could be a great insurance policy you know, that you're not getting completely host right now. Yeah, we take a traditional DCF-based, cash flow-based valuation approach. And the main thing that we'll do is we'll inject these customer behaviors into how we make the revenue forecast and into what the marketing spend will be. And the, the way I'll typically describe it is if you had a crystal ball that could tell you what the flow of customer adoptions is going to be, how long they're going to stay, the number of orders that they place, again, if it's a non-subscription business, and then how much they spend, then that has to give you revenue. And so it's a basic accounting item. But now we've got the ability to take these very sophisticated predictive models that have been cultivated over the years within the marketing science literature and use those to make more accurate forecasts of what we're going to see. And so that kind of once we have all those models trained up, it gives us the revenue forecast for free. If we also have that view as to what overall CAC has been over time and where that may be heading in the future, then that would also give us the marketing spend into the future. And we would then use that in conjunction kind of with your traditional DCF approach, a contribution margin how much overhead, et cetera, that kind of get us down to net operating profit after taxes and whatnot. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful, not only because I think that it's the right theoretical framework for valuation. That is how firms are valued. I really do believe that. And I think a lot of, you know, that's how finance tends to view it. But the fact that you have a model that is a hundred percent consistent with what the finance professionals use makes it more likely that your model is going to be adopted by them. And so you're not telling them to use a completely different framework. And what you're saying is to do exactly what you've been doing, but we're just going to give you a more refined estimate of what the what those final outputs are going to be. Interesting. On that as well, I'm not sure, did you see the news? It was either today or yesterday that Adobe has committed to acquiring Figma, if you're familiar with the companies, are you? I saw that news, but I have not been following and don't know too much about Figma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So basically, I think it's supposed to be like one of the highest valuations and multiple of revenue ever at 50x. My question was going to be to what do you think was going through their minds when they evaluated that company and said, okay, 50x. And as you mentioned, we're going, it seems like we're going into a recession now. And yet we're seeing like one of the highest deals ever made as a factor of the revenue. Yeah, it's that's interesting. Uh, I think what I think it's very possible and feasible and sensible to to have very high revenue multiples if it's merited. Yeah, I think if it's a software as a service firm and that firm is growing net revenue from existing customers by 40% a year, if it comes at very high margins, and if the firm is very young, so there's a lot of customers that they haven't acquired yet where they can be able to put up those same sort of figures. I think those would be the conditions where you can get to, to pretty high multiples. 50X, I, I don't know, but certainly I think software as a service in general has been able to to earn very high multiples, maybe not 50X, but yeah. you know, 10, 15, 20X by being able to take those existing relationships 
expand that business over time and uh, and do so at, a, at an 80% gross margin, which is just the sort of margin you're just not going to get in B2C business. Yeah, I think Adobe as well, I think they're probably eating into their market quite heavily, Figma, because they've built an amazing product. Actually, my first reaction was I was a little bit sad when I heard it because I was like, hope they don't ruin this because it's a really good product. I'm not saying that Adobe's also built great products, but I think over time, like they just fell behind when it comes to other competitors in the space, like Figma specifically for uh, UX and UI design as well. It's amazing. Uh, nice. I want to make sure I ask you a couple of questions, ask every guest that's joining the show. First question is, imagine a hypothetical scenario. You join a new company, trainer retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Daniel, you're in charge. You need to turn things around in 90 days. What do you do? The catch is, you're not going to tell me I'm going to go look at data or speak to customers and understand their pain points. You're just going to pick a tactic that you've seen work previously and run with that blindly, hoping it works at this company. What would you do? <laughs> I'm taking away your secret reference. Yeah, I know. If I didn't have data, I'd feel really naked. So this will be a terrible answer, I'm sure. So the operators are going to probably have much, much better answers than this. But uh, yeah, I would say if you're a non-subscription business, starting up some sort of a subscription to remove frictions from your business. I've seen that work many times at the companies that we've done diligences on. So one thing that it can often do is it can take your best customers who are the ones that have higher retention. And, uh, and oftentimes those customers are not that price sensitive. What they really care about is they love the product and they just want to do more of it. And so if you can make it much easier for them, again, if you get the stream of subscription payments from them, which obviously can be quite profitable, but you also can ramp up their order frequency. And so you get this double whammy from them. So again, not necessarily something that every company can do, but I think there is a history of companies doing that very well. Yeah. I think Amazon Prime comes to mind when you mention that specific example. Nice. And what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I'd say the great thing is there's tremendous variability across companies, even companies within the same category. And so it really is just a very useful measure to focus on because there are all these differences. If every company had the same general profile, then there's not a whole lot of room to pick winners and losers based on it. But, uh, but we definitely don't see that. Yeah. So I say, yeah, that's, that's something that I didn't really have a sense for the magnitude of the heterogeneity until I started looking at the data. Yeah, it is interesting. It's actually one of the reasons we always try to stray away from asking these specific numbers on the show, because I think you end up leaving people with the wrong idea, because it does vary drastically depending on the space, the segment, the audience you're going after, your product. So yeah, I definitely yeah, see that the point there. Nice, Daniel. It's been a pleasure hosting you today. Is there any final thoughts that you want to leave the listeners with before you drop off today? How can they keep up to speed with your work? The best places to keep up with me are on LinkedIn and Twitter. Inside Ray very frequently on, on both platforms. So yeah, happy to get to the handle for Twitter, but it's a D underscore McCarr, M-C-C-A-R. And then on LinkedIn, you think if you just Google for Daniel McCarthy Emery, hopefully we'll pull up. But yeah, I've, I live and breathe this and so I'm, I'm writing about it very often. I also teach a course, it's called Customer Lifetime Valuation. That's all about exactly what we've been talking about. So I really am the ultimate one trick pony, but it's a really fun trick, so I don't mind. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure to leave that in the show notes. If you're listening and you want to catch up later, you'll be able to find that there as well. Thanks so much for joining and wish you best of luck going forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Cheers. 
And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week. And with that, I just want to say a big thanks again to Vitaly and Chargebee for sponsoring this episode. If you do decide to check them out at vitaly.io forward slash churnfm and chargebee.com forward slash churnfm, please make sure to let them know I sent you because tracking podcast advertising is traditionally very difficult and I want to make sure we deliver value to them both so that we can retain them as our sponsors. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again next week.